0: That's join M-I-D-I.com. Brain fog, Insomnia, moodiness, weight gain.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I am so happy to have as my guest, Rob Feeney. He was a major contributor in the recovery of one of the pairs of the famous Wizard of Oz films, Ruby Slippers, originally worn by Judy Garland, a Minnesota native, and stolen from the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids. Minnesota, in 2005. In 2013, the case was reopened, and the slippers were finally recovered in 2018. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: It's great to be here, Eric. and I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely.
1: So before we get into your involvement in the case, I'd, I'd love it if you could talk about the significance of this set of shoes. Uh, these are not designer shoes. They're not covered in jewels. They're basically costume props. Shoes shoes like this can be found on costume racks in theaters across America. But these particular shoes happen to be culturally very important and therefore very valuable.
2: Absolutely. And very significant. And And again, it's it's all relative, but then again, it's not. But the the best way to sum that up as far as the significance of these shoes is really a, a quote by Michael Shaw, the actual owner of the pair that were stolen, which is a mismatched pair to the Smithsonian, which we'll get to later. But he had said, it's not really what the slippers are. It's really what they represent. And I agree with that 100%. They represent a lot of things to a lot of people. And that's the great thing about it is that it it uh, it appeals to someone who's four years old up to 100 years old, and so there's that connection there on so many different levels. But you know, in the cinematic history of things, I mean, it really is significant because The Wizard of Oz, you know, was the first film that really went from black and white to Technicolor. They're experimenting with that. But it it's just uh, it's just a lot of representation on a lot of different things that are still relevant today and still were back then. But it's really what it means to people. And, you know, there's no place like home. I mean, everybody can really understand that and recognize that regardless of where you reside in the world. I mean, that has a global message to it. And I think it resonates with people. And, you know, it's not the most watched movie of all time for no reason. It, uh, I think it really resonates with a lot of people, so.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what scenes in The Wizard of Oz were these slippers worn?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's funny because, I, as I mentioned, they're a mismatched pair to the Smithsonian pair. So, you know, they one of the shoes is actually one of the click-your-heels-three-times pair. And, you know, there was four, at least that they know of, at least four-plus pairs made for the film. And like movies today, I mean, they make extras just of shoes for multiple different reasons, for different scenes and you know, they made one pair for the dancing scenes within the film because they they had to especially kind of modify them by putting uh, orange felt on the bottom of them because of the 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 wood stage actually used when in the shooting of the film and it had an echoey sound to it, so they modified it for that. So there's multiple different pairs that were used in it, but this particular pair was used uh, the second most visible pairs of what they're they're saying that were actually seen in the film. And again, the the value of, of each pair, including this pair, is really about how often it's actually viewed or seen in the movie. So the the one scene where Dorothy just gets to, that's a sing, significant scene as well, gets to uh, the land of Oz and she knocks on the big door and she's trying to get in and at first they don't let her in. So that's, this pair can visibly be seen in, in that scene as well, but it's also one of the click your heels three times pair as well. So Two scenes that they know of, maybe more, but uh, it's uh, a very important pair, put it that way. And this pair was actually known as the traveling pair because out of all the the pairs that they made, since it was owned by an individual collector, and he was, I'm not going to say obsessed with them, but he was very, very protective of them like he should have been. So he would actually travel around the country with them in his car because he didn't want anyone touching them. He was really adamant about no one touching them you know, this pair because, you know, one, they're just really old and the more people that handle them, you know, that they can fall apart and it just, uh, you know, the chemicals and like the oils in people's hands could cause some damage to the fabric and all that. So he would actually travel around and um, bring them to hospitals and loan them to museums and what have you. And this was one of those times when they were stolen. He actually had loaned them to the Judy Garland Museum, which is Judy Garland's hometown. And that's where they were stolen. So... Does that answer your question? <laughs> it's kind of a long answer to your question, but
1: yeah, sure did. Yeah. So, besides the fact that these shoes were stolen in Minnesota, the other connection, of course, is that Judy Garland, who played Dorothy, was born here. Do you know much about her early years in Minnesota?
2: I, I do. Yep. Her well, her original name was Frances Gum G U M M, and she only lived in. Grand Rapids, Minnesota up until about four years old before she'd actually moved and ended up, you know, in California. Initially she wound up in Chicago and then ended up going, you know, in California and the rest is really history there. But she, it was really, um, there's a lot of interviews with Judy Garland where she states how, how wonderful her memories of Minnesota were and living in Minnesota. And in fact, she had said some of her fondest memories, of Of her growing up or when she actually lived in um, Grand Rapids, minnesota, which which is really interesting because uh, I think you know one ironic thing about those whole slippers cases, I think the the visibility of it has really in the attention that it's caused in a lot of ways, I think there's been some positive things that have come out of it. One is that I think people within Grand Rapids now recognize the significance of it more. And the fact that Judy Garland is from there more, I think initially, maybe some people had gotten away from that. I mean, they're a pretty removed, you know, Northern small town, Minnesota town. I mean, even today. So I I couldn't imagine back then how much smaller it would, would have been, but I think the theft actually helped her really get some recognition as well. But, Anyway, but she has some great memories. I mean if you ever go to the Judy Garland Museum, you know in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, not to be confused with Grand Rapids, Michigan. but there's there's a lot of stories. If you go into the actual museum itself, which which is uh, her childhood home that she grew up in, which is also it's attached to the museum as well. Uh, the house that she actually lived in, it's the exact same house. But they had moved it so it's not the original spot of where she actually grew up it's a couple miles away from it but she remembers very fondly uh there's a story that's pretty significant is that she remembers doing these like little plays and shows with her sister on the on the bottom of the stairs of the house and so there's a lot of stories about her kind of doing like a Um, kind of like a little mini show where she kind of like hide behind like the stage. And then suddenly she'd kind of appear like in a make-believe thing. And then like the, the floor of the living room, it's like hardwood floor would be considered like the, you know, the actual stage, you know, where she's performing. So even at a young age, I think she had premonitions or she had an interest, a natural interest and desire to, to do something in show business. And that's where she ended up, which is kind of interesting, but
1: those years Uh, She lived here were 1922 to 1926, approximately, right?
2: Correct. Yes. Yes. Yep. And so, and again, you know, there was a a theater that her dad had owned in the town as well. And I think as of recently, I haven't been up there in in a couple of years. I think they might've torn it down, I believe. But uh, so again, I think that was really her, You know, even from an early age, first born, she really was just brought up in that environment a show business directly or indirectly, but wound up in L.A. But, you know, the, the four short years she was in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, it sounds like she had a lot of surprise and surprisingly a lot of memory, good memories of that time period. And she remembered quite a bit of it. And every interview I ever have seen of her, she always, when she refers to Minnesota, she refers to it very fondly, very positively. So uh, yeah, that's it. Hopefully that answers your question a little bit, but there's a wonderful history there. And I think if you drove through Grand Rapids, not knowing Judy Garland's from there, uh, you know, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't remember the city. There's just not, there's just not a lot there. It's, uh, you know, I think it's developed quite a bit, but it's a real blue collar, kind of a Northern steel, kind of a mining town really. And Grand Rapids is really known for their uh, iron ore. So back in the 1950s, the, uh, they had mine pits everywhere, where or iron ore was the big you know, mineral that used, they used to mine for. So you go up there, there are these mine pit quarries everywhere, which, you know, fast forward, we can get this later, but, what, you know, they, they've all filled up with water at this point. These mine pits, they closed back in the 50s, and um, I don't think any of them are active anymore, but one of them in particular uh, was rumored to be one of the the locations where the thieves, the perpetrators of this Judah Garland museum theft had actually discarded the, the stolen pair into that we ended up doing a, a scuba dive search for, which drew so much attention. It became a, you know, it first became a top Minnesota story then it became a top national story. And then eventually went on six weeks later to become a top world story. So again, getting back to your first question about the significance and the message, I mean, um, it resonates with people. It's such a big story because it just, that pair of ruby slippers represents so many things to so many different people.
1: I definitely want to ask you about the mine pits and your involvement in the search for the slippers there. But before we get to that, how did, how did the slippers find their way back to Minnesota in 2005 and and how were they stolen?
2: Sure. Yeah, you bet. Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, so they're known as the traveling pair. So the collector, you know, the the individual gentleman who owned them, he's still alive. I think he's in his early 80s now. His name is Michael Shaw. And when back in 1970, when MGM was was bought out, you know, they bought out the land, they had this historic Hollywood auction where they'd auctioned off all of the, you know, memorabilia, all the the props, everything that were used in the movies back then where they made the movies all the sets everything were auctioned off and so you know one of the pairs ended up uh, in the hands of this other this collector named michael shaw who owned them and a lot of other significant movie pieces as well but so he would travel around and you know to these hospitals and to he'd loan them out to different museums you know these museums would give them you know a, a lump sum whatever it might be up front and then he would loan his pair to the museum and then they'd keep them on display for a period of time for special events or you know multiple different reasons multiple different events that were going on and then um, you know that would be it and it was more just to attract more foot traffic into these establishments but he'd also bring them to hospitals too and have sick kids look at them and there's a there's a famous story where he he was at a hospital with them once and there was a, a, a young blind girl, sadly, and she had honestly believed that she, her blindness could be cured by touching the ruby slippers, and he was so adamant about nobody touching them, including her, he actually uh, said no. <laughs> he didn't want her to touch him, and he he made sure that she didn't. So again, but a very eccentric gentleman. He was a, a child movie actor, a voiceover actor from what I believe. I've actually never met him. I've heard a million stories about him. But so he, for many, many years during the annual Wizard of Oz festival in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Julie Garland's hometown, the founder of the museum, they would have an annual Wizard of Oz festival, like a parade. It was a weekend event. I think it started off maybe as a week event, but every year they would have this. And then Michael Shaw would loan his pair to the museum, again, more for foot traffic, you know, it makes a lot of sense to have them on display as an exhibit up at the Judy Garland Museum. And so that's what he did. And so back in 2005, that wasn't like the first year he had done that. He had done that for many, many years and knew the the founder of the museum and the executive director up at the museum really well. But so it was actually, I think it was about a, a two week or a week and a half or two week event, actually, at least it was back then. And the very last day of the event, uh, the Wizard of Oz Festival in 2005, uh, that's when they were stolen. It, the day before they were supposed to, you know, not be up there anymore and he was supposed to come there to collect them, that's when they were stolen. So he had loaned them to the museum. And again, they had worked out, you know, Michael Shaw, again, was so adamant about the slippers. I know that the there was a local bank that actually loaned the, uh, their safe, a big, big safe, to put the slippers in every single night, but because Michael Shaw was so adamant about no one touching them, he had specifically advised the museum staff not to put them in the safe because he didn't want anyone touching them. So uh, that's when they were stolen. I mean, they had a security system there that was a little lax in a lot of ways, you know, all due respect to the museum. And uh, again, that's when they were stolen and it became obviously international news, big, big news, but. Coincidentally, the very next day was when Hurricane Katrina hit and no pun intended, it kind of washed away the story a little bit because that became a, a bigger story, obviously. But anyway, that's how it started as far as the theft goes. And that would have been August. There is, there's always a lot of speculation around exactly which day it happened because it happened in the wee hours of the summer. August was the 28th, 2005, but it was actually a uh, it was determined that it actually occurred. The theft occurred on a Sunday, so it was basically a, a smash and grab where the perpetrators or perpetrator came in through the back door. And uh, I can't really share this, but I will tell you that I was told very credibly that they they had broken the back door with a baseball bat, but they had never recovered the baseball bat. And there was so much glass uh, from whoever hit that with some pretty big force that the glass went all the way down the hallway and they were in and out of there uh, with, within 42 seconds. And again, how they determined that 42 seconds, I have no idea, but it's very, very quick. And, you know, there is also a big rumor that just that night that the camera wasn't turned on, but it wasn't just that night, although that, that really does make a great story. It's more of, they had, the museum had intentionally shut the camera off on a number of different occasions because there were a lot of people coming in and out of the back door all the time, And the alarm would go off and dispatch to the police and the police would come out there and there was nothing going on at the museum. So they had shut the video camera off for many, many times, uh, you know, for different reasons. And I guess from that night, it was shut off for a period of time that night. And that's when they were stolen. And that's really where the whole inside job rumor came about. But, uh, but that's what happened. And they were in a plexiglass like cube and. They smashed the heck out of it, grabbed them and took off. And the only thing left at the crime scene was literally one sequin from uh, the the pair of ruby slippers, which later became an identifiable cosmetic imperfection. That was, uh, actually I was the first to, um, authenticate them basically. And we can get to that later, but that was one of the, the significant things that I had pointed out to the police because they, they weren't sure if, uh, you know, what they had at, at that point were, was the real deal or not until I had kind of taken a look at them. But we can talk about that later.
1: Is there any credible evidence that, that it was an inside job or, or, or is that baloney?
2: Well, I can't really go into that. I mean, th- there's a lot of interesting things about that. And again, I try to stay out of the police part of it. And I don't know, to be honest with you. if If I did, I couldn't really share it. <laughs> And so I don't, I don't want to go into that. But um, you know, the FBI is doing their thing. It is still an active criminal investigation. So I want to be sensitive to that, all due respect to the FBI. Yeah.
1: Sure. Uh, it had to have been pretty crushing for the the museum's director for this to happen right under his nose, and for the owner of the shoes.
2: Yeah, shocking. I mean, absolutely shocked and. The story goes, and again, his name is John Kelsch, You know, great guy, uh, him and John Miner. John Miner is the founder of the museum, just wonderful people. But, uh, you know, and, and it's public knowledge too, but I remember uh, John Kelsch had told me the story where he, he um, I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but the, you know, the day, like the morning, the police, you know, and it was known that they were stolen. You know, someone had called John and, and just basically just said, they're gone and didn't say what they were referring to or anything like, like that. Didn't say, Oh my God, the Ruby slippers were stolen. They just said, you know, they're gone. And he had just gotten out of the shower and he knew exactly what they were referring to. And again, shocking, shocking. And it's still shocking. It's still shocking that it happened. And uh, you know, it, but it's the perfect recipe for (laughs) a lot of speculation and rumors. And it just makes a fabulous story. So, you know, the great thing, is that just because the media loves a good story and, it, you know, it kept the awareness of the theft, uh, you know, in the public's eye for so long because of that. And, it, you know, it really, it's because it kind of going back to your first question, there's so much significance beyond it, but it, it means all things to all people. I mean, you got the crime aspect to it. You got the celebrity aspect to it. You got the historical Hollywood aspect to it. You got the Who whodunit case, I mean, you got the magical ruby slippers that were stolen. I mean, you got an inside job. You got a conspiracy. You got everything, mystery. So again, that's very alluring. So the media just was running the story for a long time, and then over time, before two thousand and thirteen hit, I mean, at that point, it it uh, it it was almost a cold case. I mean, technically, it was. People had just forgotten about it, and then when I stumbled upon it, it was just complete serendipitous coincidence, and I understood just being in Minnesota, the, the value of the case and, you know, obviously remember it. And I happened to call these private investigators uh, just out of random uh, researching home alarm systems for, uh, you know, my house, for my family. And and it just so happens I was researching them like any consumer would research anything. And there were these private investigators that actually were selling uh, home alarm systems and selling the one that I was looking into. So I ended up calling them. But I couldn't make the connection. Like, okay, they're private investigators, but yet they sell home alarm systems. So it turns out they were this very small agency, but they sold home alarm systems on the side. And, you know, and I'm talking to this guy, really nice guy, went went back and forth on two or three different occasions over the course of a couple of weeks about this particular model, security model, looking into, ironically, you're talking about home alarm systems, but I ended up um, going back and forth with him and he offered me a job and i ended up turning the job down i it was kind of out a left field and i said well you know i'm i don't know anything about the pride investigations world i don't need a job i have a good corporate job and he's like well and i said plus i'm not licensed and he's like well you don't need to be we're looking just for someone to help us open up cases and that's why i, I remember the judy garland museum theft, and i remember thinking well as a marketing ideal i thought you know you guys should just call up to the museum and see if you can get the case reopened or reinvestigated, I said it has so much publicity potential around it and the theft. You know, you guys would get some really good free advertising out of it if you got the case reopened. And then I happen to remember that I know the founder of the museum because he also invented scratch and sniff, which are actually now called scratch and smell due to the 80s cocaine epidemic. They had to change the name of it, but he also invented scratch and smell children's stickers. So I remember talking to him about something unrelated years ago. And then I happen to remember, as I'm talking to this private investigator about this home alarm security system, about um, that I just remember that. I'm like, you know, and that's when I said, if you want, I could give those guys a call on your behalf and just see what I can do for you, just more as a nice gesture. And I turned his job offer down and he's like, well, basically, if you want to do it, go ahead, blah, blah, blah. And I remember hanging up with him going, why did I, why did I offer that? <laughs> and so, and I, and so I said, well, I told him I would do it. I would just, cause I don't know these guys from Adam. I thought, well, I'll just call up in the museum and just see what happens. And it, so it just so happens as I called, I mean, talk about freak luck. John Kelsch had just gotten out of a board meeting, like literally walked out of it. And I basically just call him up. And I said, Hey, you don't know me from Adam. <laughs> I said, but I know John minor, the founder. And I said, uh, you know, I, I just got the phone with these guys and I just explained the whole private investigation story looking for these home alarm systems and I said, you know, they're looking for cases to, to take on. And I suggested perhaps, you know, they might have an interest in taking a look at your case. And I said, I don't know where you're at in the whole process of the of the theft or the police are investigating it getting in or you got your own, you know, private investigations firm you work with or what. And John just started laughing and goes, Oh my God, he's like <laughs> he's like, You're not gonna you're not even gonna believe this. I'm like, Well what? He's like, I, I literally just walked out of a board meeting and we were just talking about the theft and how we want to hire a private investigations agency because the 10-year anniversary of the theft is coming up this summer. And we want to, you know, pay a tribute to the slippers and maybe bring more awareness around it to see if we can get them found. And and I just, you know, it was funny, but that's how it started and then end up making introductions with the private investigators in the museum and that's how the case got reopened basically just uh, from a freak random phone call to these guys so funny story but that's a true story
1: yeah it's an interesting story but but even more interesting uh is that this should have been the end of it for you right
2: um back to your corporate job oh completely i gotta tell you I, i'm I'm the least most qualified person to be involved in anything like this. And, <laughs> and I, I try to keep getting away from it. And again, I just thought it was a nice thing to do for these private investigators, not thinking in a million years that the case would get reinvestigated. And then, you know, I became really close with the the museum, you know, the two Johns up there who are just awesome and just fun. It was fun, you know? And, and I, over time, I just, they kept just bringing me back into it and, and, the private investigators ended up getting fired. They just weren't really, I shouldn't say fired, but they were let go from their responsibilities. They just weren't producing anything. I know the museum had paid them a sum of money to investigate the case and they just weren't doing much. And they just sort of, as they put it, kind of disappeared the investigators. So I got to know the founder really well and I felt bad about that because I felt somewhat responsible and he's like, felt somewhat obligated. And he's like, you know, he's like, Rob, I just want to appreciate you helping me out. and in all this but he's like you know we got this this wizard of oz festival coming up here and we got the 10-year anniversary of the theft it's like are you looking for, you know we're looking for ideas to you know get some publicity from the museum because you know they're a non-profit museum and he's like do you have any ideas and i said well i remember for a fact from a good reliable source that one of the the rumor the bigger rumors was that they were thrown into one of these iron ore mine pits filled with water now about three miles away from the museum and and I remember just throwing it out there as just a off-the-cuff idea. I said, well, because we knew the police had never searched it. For whatever reason, it was never searched. And, you know, there could be a $3 million pair of ruby slippers in there. That's what they were worth at the time. At the time they were stolen, they were actually worth about a million dollars. And getting back to that for a second, the, um, right before they were stolen, actually, uh, they were insured by the museum for a million dollars. And... There was a lot of confusion around that and speculation that that oh my god it must be an inside job and people thought it was um the actual michael they thought it was michael shaw that that insured them but you know it, it wasn't so people thought for sure that just screamed conspiracy all over the thing but um anyway but i i threw out there to the uh, you know the founder of the museum i said well you know maybe you should get some scuba divers down in that tioga mine pit and just it's called the Tioga Mine Pit. And the founder actually lived on that site and, and uh, right there. And, and I said, if nothing else, it'll, it'll make a really good story and get some publicity to generate. So people start talking about this case again. And I knew like anyone, it wasn't hard to figure out that 10 years had gotten gone by at that point almost. And there had to have been people talking at that point about the theft. And it was always this big rumor that it was either Michael Shaw as an inside conspiracy situation. And doing it in conjunction with someone at the museum or was a um, like a local job bunch of local kids breaking in there or it was um maybe some sort of a professional ring of of thieves and so we can, those were the big three rumors and so and again I hung up with John after I made that suggestion not thinking he'd ever call me back again but then called me back a little bit later and you know he's he's a very wealthy gentleman and he's like i love the idea rob i love that idea let's do it but he's like the thing is i want you to lead the effort and coordinate it the search the dive for the ruby slippers in this mine pit i'm like no way i just said there's no way i could do that i don't know anything about it it's dangerous the dnr actually owns the land up there but that's how the whole dive started and then i end up doing a I ended up agreeing to it reluctantly. If it was anyone else, I never would have agreed to it, but then I ended up agreeing to it. And I had six weeks to actually coordinate the whole thing on my own, which I did. And then I did a marketing campaign around it for the museum, just as a nice gesture to get them some publicity. And at first the media didn't care. The story was kind of dormant at that point. And it just so happens it was a slow news day. And the other thing too, this location up in, um, the city's actually co it where this happened, uh, where this dive took place, which is again like three miles from the museum where the theft occurred, and it just it's it's really there was no literal address for this mine pit, so the media couldn't find it. More or less, want to go up there. I mean, if you think of the movie Fargo, that's where this place is. Like seriously, in the middle of nowhere, no address. So and just none, of, no one in the media called us back at first. No one had an interest. You know, the the press release I put out didn't generate any interest up until uh, about a week before the actual event. And then there was just no news going on that day. And then the story just exploded. I mean, we were hoping at best that we could make it into a top Minnesota story, but that was just a a pipe dream. But that's what happened. And that that happened within four hours after the press release went out. And then it was a weekend search event. And then the next day, uh, you know, it was a a two day dive. And then the last day of the museum or the, the Wizard of Oz Festival was the last day of the dive. Um, and again, we didn't find the shoes, obviously, but uh, it be they were actually talking about it on Good Morning America the next day. and then, But we didn't produce anything, but that generated so much publicity that I became really close with the Grand Rapids Police, the Grand Rapids Minnesota Police Department up there, most specifically uh, the Chief of Investigation, Sergeant Bob Stein. And he and I became really close, turns out, because I was really scared to talk to the police. I mean, after the, the press release was, you know, to get publicity from the museum and to get people talk and just create a buzz about the Ruby Slippers. But beyond that, hopefully produce some leads. So in the press release, I had stated in there for anyone with police tips or information, please call the Grand Rapids police. But a lot of people just called me because they knew I wasn't a cop. And I mean, I got so many... Crime tips you wouldn't even believe. a next thing, you know, next thing you know, I'm in the middle of this, you know, criminal investigation. Basically, getting all these crime tips, and you know, they were scary. It was fun for like a day, and it was just terrifying. I mean, people would call me at all hours of the night. But then, you know, I'd relay that information to the police, which ended up later on was a, a big tip off. We could talk about that, a big tip off to how the case was actually um, or the slippers were actually resolved. But you know, so mission accomplished as far as getting the buzz going. But the the police tip ended up going into the Grand Rapids a good year before that ever went public. And it was the Grand Rapids police who get so much of the credit, you know, but there is a team effort. But, I mean, they the FBI came much, much later. We can certainly talk about that in a minute here. But the FBI was, you know, came much later. But it was really that effort in combination with um you know, the Grand Rapids police and the Grand Rapids police. I was so close to the chief of investigations up there. And I mean, he didn't even tell me that he knew anything about the, you know, about how the recovery was made and the, the people who had actually called in the tip. And I mean, I didn't know anything about it for a good year. I mean, he, he was pretty tight lipped about it. I had no idea. And up until, you know, about 2017. And again, just for the record, all due respect to the FBI but the FBI didn't have any interest in this case whatsoever. I pleaded with them on three different occasions to to reopen or take a look at the case and they just they said well the statute of limitations has expired it's just not a, a productive use of our resources in time and money because we can't make an arrest and so you know the FBI got involved later on and you know I was kind of scratching my head because they got involved at the very end based on what what the Grand Rapids police were doing and the Grand Rapids police, because apparently or, you know, allegedly, let's just say that they had crossed state lines at that point. You know, the FBI is a federal case at that point. So the FBI got involved, but more for manpower. And it was the Grand Rapids police, you know, Bob Stein, who had actually secured the FBI to about a 100 different um, agents to to do a sting operation so the sting operation based on everything that the Grand Rapids police had done at that point and the efforts around quite a bit of the efforts around what I had done was really what produced the 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 lead that had actually broke the case open but it's still a team effort and the FBI did a good job but they came in so much later after the fact and I was really surprised because at first they just didn't express any any interest in, in, in the actual Case at first, up until you know the end. So, uh, but anyway, so anyone that says I like, they can take credit for the recovery 100 percent, it's false. No one can. I mean, there was just a lot of people that, in a lot of different capacities, that were involved to make it happen. So,
1: so the mine pit search were the Grand Rapids police actively working the case before that happened, or did the national publicity? Uh, act as motivation for the police to start working on this a little bit harder?
2: Kind of both. I mean, the Grand Rapids police, I, at first, I didn't think they had interest in the story at all. I mean, but they did. I, and up until I got closer to them, I that was my assumption. I was wrong. They were working it diligently. They were working it more quietly. But, you know, they, they have a lot of other cases too. But, you know, all due respect to them, I mean, they're at the time, it was a f- police force of two people when this theft occurred in in August of 2005 and they're, they're not really trained for art thefts. I mean, that's a whole different animal. So, you know, they did the best they could, but they, they were under a lot of scrutiny in the beginning to that they dropped the ball and that they weren't able to catch who it was and they should have. And so I think at that point, and this is just my opinion, they probably didn't want to be too public about it because they're under a lot of negative scrutiny in the media at the time, but they still were working it. I mean, they really did. I think, I think when when I came aboard and got involved, and maybe they saw how big of an awareness it became again, and how big of a uh, public interest pop culture story it became. I think that certainly inspired them to take it even more seriously. Maybe, I would think. I mean, but they were already working it, but that certainly didn't hurt them to get a little bit more involved in it as well. But you know, it became a relevant story at that point. But the, the media was just so crazy about it that they probably felt just like me that the likelihood of it of them being recovered or at least finding out who who did it and who's responsible it, it was was high at that point because I mean it, it had been 10 years at that point before you know anything had really been going on. you know but but so many people had spoken about it. and again, it'd be in the news for a while, then it would disappear and then be in the news and then it'd disappear. But um, but no, the police were still working. It, but that, the the whole media circus around that dive really um inspired them to probably get a little bit more involved in it and just pursue it a little bit more. I mean, they kind of had to. I mean, they were getting police tips like crazy. They didn't really have a choice in it. So, but they were great. They were great to work with, and they were they don't get enough credit for that. I think you know again once the FBI kind of took over on it. And they really have their hands full. I almost feel bad for them. But um, they just did, I don't think they, my opinion, they just didn't give the Grand up as police as much credit as they deserved. Cause they probably deserve most of the credit of uh, at least 80% of it for sure. And you know, I just happened to be there to help out a little bit. But uh, anyway, that's, that's really kind of how it went down.
0: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation?
1: More than once, actually.
0: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really?
1: Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com.
2: Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: You you suggested um, that, that the feds got involved in this case after an incident involving the crossing of... State lines. It it was the spark that drew the FBI in. Can you tell us any more about this? I mean, what was it? Was there a specific clue that that dropped into someone's lap that that propelled the investigation toward the recovery of the shoes?
2: Yeah. Well, again, so the Grand Rapids Police. Not really good. Really good question. So the Grand Rapids police were the ones that that got the tip, and basically it was a, a couple people. Posing as someone who had claimed to have information about the whereabouts of the, the Ruby Slippers. And again, they had received so many police tips and they pursued every single one of them. None of them panned out. So they're, again, rolling their eyes. It's kind of going, oh, God, here's another call, Ruby Slippers call. But this turned out to, and again, I, I can't say exactly uh, just because it's still an open criminal investigation, but they these people who were posing as someone who knew a little bit more than they should have about the case had a, had said something specific, uh, that made them realize the police realized pretty quickly that it was a, a really solid tip. And turns out that, you know, this party or parties turned out to uh, be the, you know, the people responsible behind it to some extent. So, and again, uh, that's what happened. And, and, Brian Matson, who was the active investigator assigned to the case at the time by Bob Stein, you know, the chief, the, the police sergeant up there, the chief of investigations. And Brian was the first to receive the, the call. And, and again, there was a series of calls But Brian was the, the first to take it. And then um, it was Bob Stein who had kind of realized that, Hey, you know, we should probably uh, they figured, they figured out a way to basically just uh, track the calls and just be able to Kind of figure out where they were coming from, and, and that's kind of where the investig the quiet investigation kind of took place at that point. And then it was about a year later is when, uh, when when they got the call. It was in two, I think it was July of 2017, and then but the FBI didn't get involved until about 2018, so about a year later. And again, so they were the Grandpa's police were really actively pursuing it and just tr- tracking these particular people or persons down and that that's really where it started but during that time I remember I got a call from Bob Stein who had you know because we were talking and exchanging notes and everything else and going back and forth and phone calls all the time text messages and everything else you know became really good friends it turns out that there was someone I went to high school with that used to be a police officer up there that he knew and that's we at that point because I was really nervous to share too much with him but we became really close after that and he had called me up to Grand Rapids, but he wouldn't say for what. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, we'd never met. And it'd be great to have you up here. And we'd like, you know, Brian Mattson, and I would like to talk to you and maybe have a sort of a closed door session and just exchange notes and just kind of go over all the information that we have to make sure that you, you've given us everything. And I didn't know what he was referring to. I, I didn't know if I was in trouble or what but my wife had said, you know, don't go up there. Don't talk to those guys. It sounds like you're in trouble. I'm like, for what? And then, you know, the statute of limitations expired. It's no, you know, I knew I wasn't in trouble, but I was just so curious. It just, at, I just had a feeling like there has to be something more to this. Otherwise he wouldn't call me up there. But I, I ended up going up there, you know, I took the three hour drive North up there and then ended up, uh, you know, meeting with him and Brian. It was the first time I'd met Brian and they sat me down and they, we talked, I mean, for a good good hour, good hour and a half, probably just going back and forth, just reiterating a lot of things that we'd already talked about for several years. And then they, they both kind of looked at each other and then they kind of looked at me and then basically Brian pulls out this, uh, I think it was Brian pulls out a laptop and one of them, I think, I think it was Bob. He said, you know, we we want to take a look at the series of these photographs and tell us, you know, what you're looking at. So I'm like, Sure end up doing that and sure enough it was a stolen pair Michael Shaw's stolen pair and I and I remember looking at him he's like they asked me like well what do you what are what are you looking at right now I'm like well this is obviously the the stolen pair of ruby slippers and they're like well how do you know that and I just went through all the cosmetic imperfections of it you know one where the sequin was was missing that they found at the crime scene and just the markings on it and just the fact that because they were a mismatched pair to the smithsonian pair that's on display right now one of the sizes is bigger than the other so by like a half a foot and judy garland had really tiny feet she was really little so and i just went through and then i i happened and i just thought that it was a current picture a photo of the there would be slippers and then on the inside you know they marked all the shoes they always put like a number of the scene that they were used in and and it said Judy Garland in them and some other like markings on there to identify them. And I noticed one of the, one of the, um, some, some of the writing on the inside was rubbed off. And it wasn't until I noticed that after 10 minutes of just going through identifying and authenticating these slippers that I realized that it, that was a recent photograph that they were showing me. And at that point I knew what, I knew that they had recovered them. This, again, this was a good year before they were they actually went public with the sting operation and everything else, but I, I just couldn't believe it. My mouth dropped like a cartoon character. It was on the floor. I just couldn't believe it. And so I knew at that point that they had recovered them or, you know, that they were really close to either making an arrest if they could have, or, you know, just coming close to figuring out what happened. But the physical recovery to me was always a big bonus because before that I was told by, I don't know how many reliable people that they were burned And from really reliable people, I mean, I'd get these calls from people who would threaten me and, you know, I had a death threat once and people would say, you know, if you go to police with this, you know, we're going to find you, blah, 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 all sorts of stuff. So I just, you know, I kept my mouth shut about a lot of it. I was just so scared. But, you know, there were people that didn't know each other that were telling me consistent stories of how they were burned and going into full length detail about them. And then we were told that they were in the can of steel mine pit which is a different mine pit from that that location that we searched and which is a much bigger mine pit and they're um they're really on the outside really beautiful these mine pits the the waters filled with hydrogen so they're really clear beautiful beaches and they're big party spots but they're extremely dangerous i mean you're talking about there's all sorts of history in these mine pits i mean there's a part of a train in one of them there's a There's like really um, expensive, valuable cars in some of them. This can of steel mine pit where we were told that they were burned in because it used to be at one time um, a point of it or an area of this mine pit where, because it fills up with water every single year by about a half a foot to the point where they were worried about the area flooding, so they they um, put in these these pumps to pump the water out because the water level is getting so high. But before that, the water got high. There was one area of this. Steel mine pit where they'd had these bonfire parties. And they that's supposedly, and again, I believe that 100% after a while that that's where they were burned. So I had a diver that I worked with very closely. And I can't say who it was who, you know, we were I was doing these land searches, and he was doing these water searches. And we were looking for just remnants burn remnants of, of these slippers. I mean, to the point where, you know, I, I had a world renowned scientist, and biologists look at, uh, you know, basically described to us in a visual analysis of how much discoloration these slippers would be just due to the, the, the water composition. I mean, we had it down to a science and we determined that the only thing that would have been remaining on, on the slippers that were stolen were the bows. They would have stayed intact just based on the, the raw material that these slippers were made out of. And there was also a lot of, uh, Glass particles within them as well. So, you know, I determined that if you put up a light, you put a light source on these, they'll be reflective underwater. So we were just looking for the bows. I was one hundred percent convinced that we we would find something and that they were burned. And long story short, so this mine pit that we we're looking at, the first the first location, the Tioga mine pit, we looked at. It's uh, I think it's about one hundred. I think it's uh, one hundred and twenty feet deep, perhaps maybe a little bit more. This can of steel mine pit's almost 200 feet deep. So really scary. And there was also a story of a woman who had um, perished in her car. Her car actually went in and she had her seatbelt on and they, her car sank to the bottom and there was basically a, a, a corpse with the skeleton with a seatbelt on it still in a car at the bottom up here. Really, really scary place. You fall in there. You're they're not going to find you probably ever because the threshold of a diver is only a hundred 20 feet before you decompress. So it's just too scary to rescue anyone. So there's all sorts of stuff down there, including bodies from what I've been told by people that know. <laughs> so, but that's where we were searching. And then um, the whole story took a entire left turn eventually when I looked at this pair and identified them working with the, the police at that point, And I just couldn't believe it. So that's where it started. And then that eventually came, uh, uh, sting operation came to fruition as a result of that. And that was based on the, you know, the Grand Rapids police, Bob and Brian, I think it was more Bob, Bob's second in charge over there, where um, he had actually, uh, you know, contacted the FBI, the national FBI to coordinate the sting operation effort. So that's when they were recovered. And that was in Florida where that happened. So, so the
1: people that, that contacted the tip line, what was their game? had they been trying to sell the shoes somewhere along the line to some rich anonymous
2: collector? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's always the motive. I mean, with art thefts, especially you do history on it and, you know, it's a lot of times there, there are these, it's a thief or thieves who, you know, they basically steal these high valued items and they, they try to sell them on the, the black market for, you know, a, a much less price, but, pretty hard to do when you have a pair of ruby slippers that the world is familiar with without getting a lot of attention. So a lot of times these uh, perpetrators or perpetrators who who do these kind of thefts, they, you know, they they basically wait for the statute of limitations to expire before they even attempt to um, try to sell them to, to, you know, an underground source of some sort. So, but from what I, I gather, and again, this is just a lot of the, a lot of this was, um, Made public, some of it wasn't, but just based on what I was told or was made known to me, that I, I think the, the dollar amount was like two hundred thousand dollars. But yeah, their their motive was basically just to sell them and try to get something for them, and their game was just basically like, hey, we, you know, we 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 know who has the slippers, we we know what happened, you know, but if you want us to tell you, we want X amount of money. I, I was told two hundred thousand. I think that's credible, but I don't quote me that a hundred percent. But that's what I was told. But but the point is, yeah, they they were doing it for money, so again, not uncommon at all, but it turns out they you know they had asked Brian Matson at first, I think it was the very first conversation they had with them about you know if that reward, because six weeks after that dive effort there there was a million dollar reward that was put up, and they were asking about that, and I had done the um you know the the p r campaign and the publicity for the the million and I you know. I basically represented the it was an anonymous benefactor at that point someone had offered up a million dollars you know to and it was a real it was a real um reward to find the slippers and so they were asking about that and so they had heard about that maybe there was some reward being offered to some extent so that's what they were trying to do but it turns out it was it was it was people I guess directly involved in it to some extent so that that's what happened but they ended up Again, getting a bunch of FBI agents. The FBI kind of took it over from there. I mean, that's what they're good at. So up until that, though, before the extort or the before the sting operation was put in place, I mean, the Grand Rapids Police were were investing in it very quietly for a good year. And again, I had no idea up until you know they brought me in there and had me look at these these photos, which ended up on Expedition Unknown by Josh Gates. If you ever watched that, and you know they made it look like that was the first time anyone had ever seen them. And that, that's not true, but um, anyway, but that, that's kind of how it went down, but uh, their motive was money. So, but impossible. I, so I don't know. It's interesting. Cause I don't know if, I, I mean, I don't know if they stole these things, not knowing, which I don't know how they could have not realizing or thinking or believing there would be so much media attention around it, but I'm sure that's why we thought it was you know, initially um, you know something else had happened we thought maybe it was uh, I thought anyway a little more of a local connection because I mean or someone that just didn't know a lot about <laughs> the significance of these shoes and how valuable they are but I mean anyone else I think in the world most people would know well they wouldn't think to steal them for one thing but if they did even if they were professionals who did it I think they would be like well we can't steal these things there's no way we can hide them there's just no way there's just there's just too much uh it would just be too big of a story for us to pull this off so but i don't know
1: so who was it do you think what was it a professional thief uh someone who had heard about the slippers on display and and decided to take a shot
2: yeah well you have to ask the fbi that (laughs) i'm not gonna (laughs) say anything else but uh yeah, well, that's a great question for the FBI. So uh, we'll just save that one. But, <laughs> yeah, interesting. But um, anyway, funny stuff. Well,
1: this is an audio podcast. So you can either nod or shake your head, okay? <laughs> no one will know.
2: Oh, <laughs> can I swear? Uh, anyway, but no, it, it was, um, but there's just so much of the story. But uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. And I, it's going to be really interesting to see what the FBI goes public with. But if they ever do, I mean, they. You know the whole Why is
1: is the case still open? Well, I think,
2: I mean, they they just they have they have a lot of ground to cover in ten years. There's a lot of things they have to do, and you know there are a lot of scrutiny. So they want to make sure they do it correctly. I'm sure, but you know by the time the FBI got in, into it, which was what 2018. Yeah, uh, they, I mean, it had been going on for ten years. They were starting from scratch, so I think it's going to be a super long time before we hear any anything from them about. A case, uh, I just don't know, and that's the sad part too. I just hope uh, I'm optimistic, and I but I really hope that they're doing, no pun intended, justice to it because it's it's a big case, and you know I think with the Grand Rapids police and, and myself involved, we were all about just making sure being adamant that you know, we were we were working on it with integrity, and that everything that was coming out was honest, and it was it was also about separating fact from fiction because there's so much speculation, fictional stories about what really happened and who done it and everything else. And so, and then, you know, the FBI just kind of swooped in and, and took control of it at that point, like they should have, but you know, you, you, you kind of wonder, I, I mean, again, me personally, it was disappointing just because I didn't hear the FBI give, you know, and again, I don't, I don't need credit. I, I don't necessarily want credit, but I, it's great if they were to give me credit for something with it after begging them to take on the case. uh, I registered with, you know, I registered the case with the FBI. And again, I don't need credit for that, but I wish they would have given credit to the Grand Rapids police who really deserved it. And I just didn't hear much about that or much credit that they were given after the fact. And I just wish I would have because they definitely deserved it. And the Grand Rapids police were not happy about that. And rightfully so. I mean, they, they did so much to clear their name and all this, after all the scrutiny they were under, uh, they just deserve more credit, in my opinion, that I think they got from a lot of people, including the FBI. So, uh, but it, it just the FBI, in my opinion, was basically just kind of swooped in and said, well, yeah, you know, we've been, we've been searching for these things since day one. But just based on my experience on three different occasions, pleading with them to, to take it on, um, at least to the national FBI location, not the Minnesota one, they just said we don't we it's not worth our time to really pursue it just cuz we can't make an arrest cuz the statute of limitations is being expired. So anyway, that's just my my experience with it so my opinion.
1: Yeah, so can you describe the, the nature of the sting operation, give us a general idea of what happened?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, basically you know, kind, the Grinabed's police, you know, when they handed off to the FBI, the the FBI had basically just, they played along with it, you know, basically posing as, uh, you know, someone willing to make a deal for the stolen pair and paying the extortion fee that they requested and met in a public place, basically a coffee shop and, and made the exchange and, you know, not knowing when they got there with with uh, merchandise to be sold just something out of a movie that there were about a hundred agents there posing as you know customers and everything else and basically surrounding the place and that's where they that's where they end up um, you know getting picked up by the fbi and again whatever happens at that point because the statute of limitations has expired i don't know if they made an arrest or not i don't know if they could i honestly don't know if the you know, the perpetrator, perpetrators can even be charged for anything. Again, I'm not a police officer. I stay out of the police part of it. At that point, you know, there was a big article in the Washington Post about it. And so there's a lot of information that was shared there. Some of it was was authentic. Some of it wasn't 100% accurate, but, um, but it kind of goes into a little bit of detail about that, about the exchange or attempted exchange. And then the FBI kind of taken over from there and figuring out who these people were. So that that's what happened. But after that, there wasn't anything public about it. And the FBI has just been diligently, from what I understand, just working it really hard. But they got their hands full. I, I can't imagine them starting from scratch after, you know, a long time after the stuff that occurred. So I know they're probably crossing their their T's and everything else just to make sure they're being thorough. But, but that's what happened. So uh, yeah, something just straight out of a movie. It's funny but serious stuff. Yeah.
1: yeah. It wasn't like a violent confrontation though, right? It was basically the jig is up, throw up your hands, hand over the shoes,
2: right? Basically. Yeah. Pretty much it. I mean, what can you do? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not in a very, um, a big position of power at that point to do much of anything. So, but that, that's what happened beyond that. I, I, I don't know. And if I did, I, I couldn't really share it, but, but that's what I was told anyway. So, um uh, but, yeah, the Washington Post has a good story about it.
1: So they got the shoes after the statute of limitations is up. So I guess I don't understand what, why the investigation is still going. Are, are they still attempting to build some kind of a case?
2: Yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, that that's a good question. I have no idea. You know, again, the statute of limitations expired. You know, they can't make an arrest, obviously. I don't know what they can charge them for. So that's a really good question. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, no idea. Uh,
1: the, the original owner of the shoes, uh, he collected the insurance money, right? Correct. Um, so who do the shoes belong to now?
2: Yeah, actually, well, yeah. So the shoes belong to the insurance company. So it was initially X S X E S S E X insurance company. I think they're, Located in Virginia. I actually spoke with them before, but they later became the Markel company. But I spoke with the attorney over there years ago and just to figure out, you know, who owns these and where are they and everything else. And so, uh, you know, when I was inquiring about where they were and, and what they would do if they were ever found. And, you know, I was so confident that they, either we'd find pieces of them or they would get recovered just based on how big the news was. But the attorney I spoke with over there, she had basically just told me that Legally, they own them, and but with the stipulation of Michael Shaw having the first right of refusal. So, if they ever were recovered, they they have a legal obligation to offer them to, to him to buy them back for whatever they're worth. At that point, the backstory made these this pair so valuable. I mean, way more valuable, in my opinion, not even my opinion, just a fact. More so than the Smithsonian pair and plus they're mismatched to the Smithsonian bear anyway. So uh, how much he would have to pay to buy them back, I don't know. If he could afford that, I don't know. I think at this point, he's probably just happy they were recovered. I don't know what he's going to do with it, but he, uh, you know, he's pretty rightfully upset about it. But I think he kind of just wants to be done with the whole thing. I think he was so tired of it, but the whole thing just took a lot out of out of everybody. But you can imagine how upset he was by you know, them get being stolen in the first place. And from what I was told after they were stolen, even though he told every Michael Shaw told everyone not to at the museum not to put the shoes in the safe at night. Before they closed up, he yelled at them for for not putting them in the safe after the fact. And so he's kind of an interesting guy from what I heard a little bit eccentric, but uh, you know, he owned a pretty nice, significant pair of Hollywood. So so that's what's gonna happen. So but I know the FBI right now still physically has the pair and you know they're doing a lot of investigative work on it, obviously. And so I think if Michael Shaw were to buy them back, if he could even afford it, I don't know when he would physically be able to even get them back. So they're probably gonna have them for a long time, I'm assuming. So but that's how it works. Do
1: you do you know the story behind how he got the shoes to begin with?
2: Well, yeah. So initially the story goes that Debbie Reynolds owned them initially. So they came from that 1970 MGM auction when MGM was bought out. And so they auctioned off all the pieces, all the movie sets, everything. And and um, there was a, a Ken Warner. Warner was his name. He was a guy that worked for MGM. And, you know, he was sort of a Pied Piper and one of the very first sort of veteran kind of grandfathers of the whole movie prop collecting world. And I think he sort of discovered it by accident, but he was, you know, he would, he would, uh, he would find pieces that were going to be auctioned anyway and he'd steal them basically from the warehouse and he'd resell them. But he, he was a huge wizard of Oz fan. So he was just determined to find the, the, you know, the pairs of Ruby slippers, but he looked for a long time and ended up finding them, you know, way up in the rafters somewhere in one of the warehouses in MGM But um, Debbie, and he was, I think he sold them from what I understand to Debbie Reynolds because Debbie Reynolds always had this big dream of establishing a museum. So basically every time she did a movie, she basically said, hey, you know, can I, she wanted to keep the pieces. That was always a big thing for her, the pieces in the movie that either she wore or you know she can get her hands on with the motive of actually establishing and putting up and starting a museum. On her own and displaying all these things, and so she ended up buying them from Ken Warner. and up getting a, you know, this pair from Ken Warner, and she also had a different pair. It was called the Arabian pair, which is a, a test pair of ruby slippers that were never used in the film. And but rumor has it that Michael Shaw had gotten a hold of them somehow, or she had borrowed them, air quotes, and then he ended up hanging on to them, and that's how he got them. But he had had them for a super long time. It's very well known as being you know this guy who owned them at the time and so kind of interesting but there was only another private party or individual that had you know ever owned this this pair at least legally and she won them in a contest a long time ago uh, which is kind of funny she uh some sort of a raffle drawing she ended up winning a pair of, of the ruby slippers but other than that michael had gotten a pair hold this pair from uh debbie reynolds and that's kind of how it started But yeah, he had some pretty significant pieces and uh, kind of funny. But the one thing I will share, speaking of history and Hollywood history, is at the time, and I think this has changed, the United States is really known for being one of the the very few countries who, at least at the time, didn't really um, see or respect the value in their heritage and their history. Like Because a good example of these movie prop pieces, I mean, after these movies back in the day, a lot of the stuff was made really cheaply but regardless they would just throw away a lot of these movie pieces these iconic movie pieces because they didn't see any real value in them they just weren't taken care of and they'd throw them away and it wasn't until much later especially during this auction this was really the the 1970 mgm auction was the big eye-opener like wow there there is a lot of value to this stuff and it's it's not a material thing it's just uh the representation and just owning a piece of history physically owning a tangible piece of these movies and it just uh the value i think really blew people away and so uh but anyway so that that's kind of what happened but um interesting so as a result of that auction that's how <laughs> basically they became available to the public and michael shine up getting a hold of them and just drive around and loan them to museums and just uh, bring them to hospitals and use them as a you know, a, a way of inspiration, which is really great. And it's really unfortunate they were stolen. However, I think it's brought a lot of awareness around more so now the, the value of the American you know, history and pop culture and what these pieces mean to a lot of people. I mean, they're really, really valuable. So uh, it's great. I mean, who would ever think that a pair of 85 year old slippers would, would be worth millions of dollars this day, but to some people it's priceless. And it's so much more than just a, a piece of fabric, you know, on these little tiny shoes. But uh, interesting, I never thought in a million years I'd be have anything to do with searching for a, a valuable pair of female shoes with, you know, a police department. So it's just kind of funny where how things transpire and how things go sometimes. But uh, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story. So anyway,
1: what is the estimated value uh, of the the ruby slippers now?
2: Well, they say three to five million, but. You know, it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it, but you put it at auction, just now with COVID and everything else, I it's interesting. I that's a good question, but it three to five million was was the value that people were given it just due to the backstory of the story. It makes it such a great conversational piece and just a huge part of our history. So uh yeah, three to five three to five million dollars if you can believe that that's what they value valued at, whether or not they would get that ever, you know, if they were ever auctioned. But uh, but that's pretty much what their value is, and I, I see that only going up over time, so we'll see what happens. but uh, an unbelievable amount of money, again, just based on what they represent, so interesting.
1: Yeah, so you are thinking about writing a book about your experience with this case, right?
2: Yeah, actually, I did. I'm done with it, and it just uh, it oh, just wow. yeah, it goes into yeah, well, thank you, thank you, I just the timing for it to come out right now isn't great with everything that's going on although there's a lot of people reading more books now than ever because due to the pandemic and people being inside so uh but it's done and you know i i felt the responsibility to record you know my experience with this and what happened behind the scenes that a lot of people weren't aware of and and just make it public and just educate people on it and it's the real story of what really you know happened you know to an extent without sharing too much either but it's really just a a personal account of my involvement, but also more so just what really happened behind the scenes in a lot of ways, but just paints a real accurate picture. And again, I felt the responsibility for that because there was so much speculation, so much inaccuracy around it. I I just wanted people to have a reference of some sort that was accurate of what's really going on. And because it changes all the time. And The thing is the biggest the weirdest thing about these shoes that you know they've been rumored to be cursed and in a lot of ways it it's probably true in a lot of ways these things this pair and something so valuable and so powerful it makes people do things that they don't want to do and including people's ego just goes through the roof they all people have motives to just for an ego um like an ego rush basically just to attach on to these slippers and say they had a little bit more involvement than they really did, you know, including people that you would trust, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. And so again, I felt a personal obligation to have the story just be as accurate as possible. And I thought the best way to do that is to record it in a book, you know, on a tangible version of what happened, but it's a fascinating book. I mean, it really is. And do you have a working title yet? I do. It's called the hunt for the Ruby slippers in black and white so that's what it's called but i always tell people if you never read a book your whole life this is the book to read because it's just so interesting and fascinating and it just appeals to everybody from all ages and it's a it's a global story so uh it's awesome but uh that's it so it took me 5 years to write it and i couldn't stop once i started i just kept going and going and going with it and it's the real accurate story of what really happened and so again i'm excited to to get it out i i there was some interest from who I can't say a big movie production company that, you know, wants to take a look at this, and there's a possibility to have it go into some sort of film adaptation. And if I don't do it, someone else will, because it just has all the markings of of a very successful movie, it's just perfect for it. So we'll see what happens there. But, uh, you know, people are contacting me about it, which is pretty exciting. So it's a great story really is. So I hope it inspires people. Even if one person buys it, I'll be happy. But so far, it's looking like there's going to be a lot more than that. So uh, it's exciting.
1: Yeah, very much so. I appreciate your time today. Rob, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate it, Eric. really do. So thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, this is great. So uh, I appreciate all the listeners, too. And I appreciate all the support through the years. I really do. And there's just so many people that are behind this story and excited, you know, when Anything about it it comes out in the media. So uh, yeah, I just wanna thank everyone too for uh, being a part of it too and listening and just having an interest in it and it's great. So I really appreciate it. So thank you.
1: Again, I've been speaking to Rob Feeney, a very important player in this very, very fascinating case. Thank you for listening to Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.
0: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.